There's a documentary called On the Road with Duke Ellington. It's this limousine, and they pass this um, luxury high-rise, and he says to the filmmaker, if you gave me X number of thousand dollars a month and put me up in a suite like that overlooking the ocean and just said, just write whatever you want. He said, you know what I would write, baby? And I guess is what he says, nothing. Because he had to be where the trains were, where the motion was, where the, you know. Someone said, what's the music of your people? He says, well, the people are my people. Welcome to The Portable Humanist, the podcast where you can listen to Vermont Humanities talks and learn when you're on the go. I'm Ryan Newswanger. Many Vermonters know Reuben Jackson as the host of Vermont Public Radio's Friday Night Jazz. He hosted that program from 2013 until 2018. Before that, Jackson served as archivist and curator with the Smithsonian Institution's Duke Ellington Collection. In this talk, Jackson shares some evocative Duke Ellington recordings and discusses Ellington's love for trains. He also describes the Ellington Orchestra's work in the segregated United States. This talk was recorded at the Rutland Free Library on February 5, 2020, for our first Wednesday series of free public lectures. Here's Reuben Jackson. Good evening. Thank you all for coming. Um, first thing I want to say is I... You know, I grew up in D.C., and you, you shouldn't. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, but in so many ways, like Vermont is my home, like in here. So I'm, I'm so happy to be with my people, all y'all. As we say in the South, all y'all. Um, let me just give you kind of a brief overview of uh, what we'll be doing tonight. When I had the great honor of, of hosting Friday Night Jazz, I was interviewed twice and in both cases I told the interviewer that the show was a high-tech version of what I did on Friday and Saturday nights as a kid which means I was the kid who would bug his friends like we'd all listen to the hit records you know but my parents also loved like classical stuff they loved big band records so you know we'd listen to the Supremes and then I'd say that's really cool but let me play something for you and then I'd play maybe is a composition by Duke Ellington featuring the cornetist Rex Stewart, Boy Meets Horn. So I say, listen to this, and my friends are like, oh Lord, here he goes again. <laughs> so that's an extension of um, the thesis, if you want to call it that, for tonight. I'm still in the basement, you all are with me. Our basement would have had to have been a lot bigger, but, but we'll, we'll get you all in there. And uh, what I want to do is have us celebrate Ellington's skill as, well, a couple of things, a master of form. And maybe you all knew this before Duke Ellington became a band leader. He got a scholarship to go to Pratt Institute in New York as a visual artist. And I am not the first person who will tell you that in many ways I think he translated the canvas to, you know, the oral canvas. And I have never seen or heard anyone who could do more with the blues form than Edward Kennedy Ellington. He once told someone he took the energy it would have, he would have used to pout and, and write blues. But he was um, just, as the rappers used to say, he had mad skills, you know. So uh, we'll, we'll celebrate Duke Ellington's mad skills. Now, we're just gonna go to the music here and I'm, I'm hoping, think about musical color, think about creativity. I think Ellington was, really great in terms of making 
innovative leaps within compositions, but also making those things accessible. And that is a tough thing to balance. You know, you can know a lot, but it's like, how do you make those things appealing to the ear? As he often said, he wrote for the people with the ears. So here, here we are tonight, you know. Just thinking again about form and quote the jazz tradition, even though Duke Ellington did not like the word jazz because he found it too confining and I, I can understand. But there are elements of a, an old jazz vehicle called Tiger Rag within this piece. But what you'll hear, you know, well, train stations down the street, we can think about Amtrak or what have you here. But uh, so example one is uh, from 1933, it's called Daybreak Express. <laughs> Just a couple of things to, to think about. The use of orchestra members is as you would use colors on a palette. You know, you hear the, 
the trumpeters, you hear the, the beautiful voicings for the ensemble. I mean, that wonderful meshing of those elements, you know, how do you, again, capture the motion of a train? And, you know, of course, before airplanes became a big thing, trains were the way to go in, in so many respects. And there was that romance of wheels. And uh, so that's one example of his, his genius. The other thing I would say before we go to the, that, you know, they would just go, maybe they'd play Rutland, maybe the next night they'd play like Kansas City. And you think, how did they do this? You know, just constant moving, constant moving. And of course, the motion, you know, ties into trains and getting places. And this will maybe also serve as something of an intro for the next piece. Consider the societal uh, tensions which existed at the time, you know. And one way Ellington dealt with um, Jim Crow accommodations was to have uh, Pullman cars and, and, you know, rent them so that the band members could play and have some place to stay and not deal with um, the indignities of being turned down in hotels and rooming houses, etc. But this piece uh, we'll be hearing shortly, Across the Track Blues, he said he wrote it because he was thinking about the fact that the band would often play somewhere and, you know, they're in a club or a ballroom or what have you, and then they would have to go back across the tracks to sleep. But listen to it, and, and I don't want to taint your listening with my interpretation, but it's not a lament or woe is me. It has, well, it's Duke Ellington. It's mastery of form. It's up to us to interpret it or just enjoy it as, as we will. So give me a second here, Across the Track Blues. <laughs>
Okay, so again, 1940. Uh, maybe you know this as Ellingtonians or lovers of Ellingtonia, but Ellington fans defend to, not the death, but to the, well, the ideological death, their favorite incarnations of the orchestra. And the group from 1940 to 43, people tell you that's it. You know, you have, by 1940, Billy Strayhorn comes on as Duke Ellington's arranging and composing partner. The orchestra's theme song changes from the blues, yet again, called Jones to Take the A Train, which many people think Duke Ellington wrote, but it's Billy Strayhorn. Think of all-star teams. You know, you've got uh, Charles Cootie Williams on trumpet. You've got Tricky Sam Natton, trombone, Ben Webster, Sonny Greer uh, for a brief moment. Just so many Johnny Hodges. You know, you take that, that team on the field and the opposition just runs the other way. Ellington and his sidemen often had beefs, as the kids say now, often over money and credit. But even the ones who said he got on their nerves sometimes would tell you when they left, there was, where do you go when you leave a band like this? So you hear this piece, it's got this nice, you know, beautiful tempo, but the colors, um, for me, and I'm a harmony um, fiend, you listen and you think, again, looking at a canvas like this by Fran Bull, this is, it's for the ear. And I do think it's another great example of that, that um, transference or translation of, of you know, the, the brush and the canvas to Johnny Hodges or, or whomever. I worked with the sound recordings, primarily with the Duke Ellington collection, but I would, I would look at these scores in his hand and, and he wrote on everything. You, you know, in addition to this movement, the, the trains provided, there was constant mental movement. You might see four or five bars of a piece of music on hotel stationery. And I looked at this cluster, this chord and thought, what does this sound like? And we had a little keyboard in the archives where you could try to figure out something if it had no title on it. And I played it and it sounded like, um, like Jackson Pollock, you know, in pen. And I thought, wow. But Ellington knew the rules well enough to break them and to maybe take the car down another highway, but it was still part of the tradition. And you know, people would ask, what's your favorite piece? He'd say, the next one. I think this too amplifies the, the question of movement. It wasn't just, he wasn't stuck in the past. Constantly creating, constantly creating, constantly moving. Ellington, of course, along with Billy Strayhorn, known for many things, among them extended works like the Such Sweet Thunder, the Shakespearean Suite, the Far East Suite, the Perfume Suite, you know, I could go on and on. This piece is from the Deep South Suite from 1950. Now I'll tell you a bit more about it before we play it because what I'm about to talk about we won't hear tonight, but you may know a piece, it's called Night Train and it's like boom, ba -dun, da -da, da -da. okay. That was originally part of the piece we're about to hear, Happy Go Lucky Local. Jimmy Forrest who played tenor saxophone in the orchestra at that time took that piece, made a hit out of it. Ellington's associates tried to get him to sue Jimmy Forrest for, you know, purloining this, but Ellington did not. This is Happy Go Lucky Local, part one. Now, this to me, as my mom used to say, and my mom was pretty 
discreet about things. He said, that train's kind of sexy, you know? <laughs> so. So that's part one of Happy Go Lucky Local, and from there it goes to the, the uh, piece we know as Night Train. Now, I just want to say something else too about Ellingson and uh, the cause or the struggle, uh, not just because it's Black History Month, but this is part of the story. Uh, Ellingson was at San Francisco State in the late 1960s. Uh, he played like a week at, at like a press conference or Q&A, a student stuck up his hand and said, what have you done for your people? And Ellington said, well, I've done it in my music my whole life. You know, Ellington did not wear an afro. He never changed his hair and all. But he would, people would ask him this question, and he, would, he wouldn't push it much because I think he was confident enough to know what he had tried to do and what he continued to do. But you think of some of his compositional titles like 
sepia panorama or a portrait of Florence Mills or Black Butterfly, Black, Brown, and Beige, you know, and, and he knew, he knew what was up in terms of the continuum. And the reason he didn't like the word jazz, yes, A, he found it confining, but he said the music is African. Now, this certainly falls in line with a lot of that which was being espoused during the time, but he said the highest praise for any artist was that he, she, or they were beyond category, and I think that's true for him, but he could be, you know, I would listen to these, like a home tapes, he's playing on the piano, and it's just like the funkiest, hanging out with your friends, do-rag on your head, drinking a beer kind of stuff, and he could play pieces with, you know, very complex harmonies, not to show that it was serious. He was just, he was bad, but good bad, you know what I mean? Um, people would say, Duke, where do you see jazz going? And he'd say, well, we stopped using that word in 1943. And he would explain why. And then the next reporter would say, Duke, what about jazz? But he would also, he would always answer with such calm and such grace. But I just, I want to give you a sense of the person behind what we've been listening to. And, and um, I hope, what, again, what you're hearing is the variety, um, how he used the orchestra, you know, and, and um, the uniqueness of his contribution, which there is so much to consider. And there's so much that we know the standards, and those are great. Take the A train, you know, the, again, Billy Streethorn, but Mood Indigo, but there's so, there is so much. Okay, um, enough of my preaching here. So we go from 1950. Duke Ellington again dies in 1974. By this time, he has outlived uh, Billy Strayhorn, his arranging and composing partner. The great alto saxophonist Johnny Hodges has died. He still has longtime geniuses like Harry Carney on baritone saxophone, but he keeps on pushing. This from 1972, so two years before his passing. He did a week at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. By this time, a lot of his pieces were, they had four-letter titles. Um, like, okay, so for the University of Wisconsin suite, the first movement is U-S, U-W-I-S. Then there's a polka in that, that suite, but it's, it's Klopp, K-L-O-P, which is polka spelled backwards without the A. The closing movement, again, a nod to his love for trains. It's, it's a piece called Loco, L-O-C-O, Maddie, M-A-D-I's, and mad about locomotions. Another thing that's a little different here, there's an electric bassist on here. I don't want to tell you what to listen to, but listen to the piano. I do want to say that. And you think about people like Cecil Taylor, quote-unquote, avant-garde players, and I mean, Ellington could just, well, so much of it came from him and through him, so that you hear bits, like you might hear a, a lecture and you hear a reference to something from the 30s, something from the 60s. It all came out in the music, and you know, I'm looking at scores at work going, you know, that's like a, something from 1947, but not in a nostalgic way, how he could use the tradition to um, make it new, as the poet Ezra Pound would say. So the last piece, it's Loco Maddy, M-A-D-I, right, yes, thank you again. Mm -hmm. 
right there it goes down the tracks there 1972 duke ellington the orchestra from the u.s university of wisconsin suite and loco maddie my father used to say um my father was like Calvin Coolidge. Like he'd give you like three words every six months, you know? <laughs> like he'd say to you, like, like this woman, he said, nice scarf. That's, that's February. He might see you in May. You still got that nice scarf? That'd be a long sentence for him. But, but he said, uh, son, Duke Ellington is no joke. That's, again, that's like a lot of verbosity from my father. And, and uh, I, I think that's true. I was just enjoying this. I hope what this brief encounter with you know, this tiny, tiny, tiny corner of the neighborhood known as Ellingtonia, you know, I hope it gives you some sense of what else there is. Um, Langston Hughes's autobiography was in two volumes, The Big C, S-E-A, and I wonder as I wander, and I think, I would, I would argue that that which we heard tonight is maybe an example of wondering as one wanders and, and pulling upon one's talents to try and create something, as Duke Ellington would say, worthy of the plateau. Uh, I still can't, I can't believe, in retrospect, like I had this job, you know, and, and to work with and organize the materials of someone so integral, I think, not just to our society, but to society at large. He was a musician and then some. And with that, if, if you have any questions or comments, I'd love to, you know, don't be shy. Hi, this is Ryan again. Because the questions from the audience are hard to hear, I'll summarize them. First, a man asked to hear a little more about Rubin's interpretation of Ellington. There's a documentary called On the Road with Duke Ellington. This is limousine and they pass this um, luxury high rise and he says to the filmmaker, if you gave me X number of thousand dollars a month and put me up in a suite like that overlooking the ocean and just said, just write whatever you want. He said, you know what I would write, baby? And I guess is what he says, nothing. <laughs> because he had to be where the trains were, where the motion was, where the, you know. Someone said, what's the music of your people? He says, well, the people are my people. And Next, someone asked Ruben how he first got into Duke Ellington's music. There was a theater, amphitheater in Washington, D.C. called Carter Baron Amphitheater. It was, yeah, there you go, okay. The in-town summer place, they called it. My parents, bless them, took myself and my older brother to hear music a lot. And I think like four years in a row, it's like Ellington and Ella Fitzgerald would come for a week. And my father was also very thrifty, so for him to take us three times in a week which he did each time they came, was a big deal. And we liked a lot of the band members' names, so we would call, you know how siblings call each other some things, sometimes they're not that nice. But my brother would say, it's time for dinner, Cootie Williams, you know, who's a trumpeter, or, or I'd call him Shorty Baker, who's a trumpeter. So it was, we were soaked in this music particularly, but music in general. Another person asked him to compare Ellington and Louis Armstrong. You don't always find innovators who are enormously embraced, you know, and those groups like the Hot Fives, the Hot Sevens, pieces like West End Blues, I mean, they really changed, or they kind of extended a notion of what, quote, jazz could be or what it could sound like. Those things, first and foremost, strike me, is that they were 
immensely loved and consistently creative. I think they were misunderstood in some ways. Uh, and and uh, I think they were deep, again, without being pretentious or, you know, it wasn't like, oh, come see us way up here on the mountain where we're making these great artistic efforts. It's like, you know, like strutting with some barbecue, like Louis Armstrong. You could, you could be profound and strut with some barbecue, you know. Thinking back what you said about Louis Armstrong, somebody said you know, to him, did you like folk music? And he says, well, what other kind of music is there? Like, we're folks. You know? I mean, that's a little funny, but, but I think um, Ellington, you know, as you may know, said there were two types of music, good and bad, uh, which is kind of typical Ellington. Finally, there was a question about how the group traveled and the image they presented on the road and on the stage. You know, there's the romance of, of the stage. The spotlights come on and they hit the tuxedos and everybody's elegantly. And, you know, Duke Ellington would say, everybody look handsome. And he'd say, you know, we love you madly. That band had, like, kleptomaniacs and people with substance abuse problems and just uh, summa cum laude curmudgeons. But he was able to get this excellence from them consistently and... I think that is undervalued for 50 years to do this, 50 years. But he took care of that orchestra as, as um, I think, as best he could. And trumpeter Cootie Williams said whether I was, like, sick or broke or tired or mad, we got on that stage and boom, you know. And, and the last thing I'll say is, this guy played with the orchestra in the late 50s, uh, trombonist Monsignor John Sanders. He said, we came out, and that spotlight hit the, you know, the stage, and Ellington's at the piano. He said he turned and smiled at us, and it's like, he said, he, what the smile said to him was, here we are again. Um, so again, this is a bit of what they played, and I thank you so much for coming out. I cannot tell you how happy I am to, to, um, to be here with, um, you know, Citizens of the 802. Thanks for listening to The Portable Humanist. Visit our website at portablehumanist.org for a transcript of this episode and for more information about Vermont Humanities.